back to Muppets in Space, a Farscape rewatch podcast on The Incomparable. Tonight we are getting closer and closer to the end of Season 1 of Farscape, and we're going to be covering Episode 17, Through the Looking Glass, and Episode 18, A Bug's Life. Not to be confused with the movie, as we said last time. Oops, I watched the wrong thing. Yeah, <laughs> oh no. I'm your host, Eric Scott, and as you just heard, joining me as always is my fellow co-host, someone I don't believe is possessed by an intelligent virus, as far as I know anyway, Jason Johnson. Now, wait a minute. Why am I always the suspicious one? I mean, how's your acid level? Well, I, I do take uh, acid reducers for my heartburn, so I really can't say. Hmm. I think I'm fine. I think it's you. I don't know. We'll find out. I guess we will. Uh, and I guess keeping up with our predictions, or hilarious predictions about what's coming up, we were kind of close in what we thought about this first episode through the looking glass. We did think it was kind of alternate dimension kind of things, and I think we get, I think that's pretty accurate. Yeah, as we'll mention, it gets a mention, but um, less multiple dimensions and more stuck in time moment split thing. But we'll get there. It, it's it's fine. <laughs> it's all good here, and lots of running around back and forth. But we'll get to that too. All right, speaking of which, let's go into it. So, episode 17, season one, Through the Looking Glass. During an extremely tense and unpleasant dinner, where they eat way too much food, which we'll probably talk about later, uh, they are constantly bickering with each other, and they are discussing the prospect of leaving Moya because of her pregnancy. Aaron, however, says she will not abandon Moya, and Zan agrees with Dargo. Without Starburst, they're all at risk, though to be captured by the peacekeepers. Crichton doesn't want to leave either, because all the wormholes they found so far are in the uncharted territories. Rigel, though, says that relationships change all the time, and he wants to trade Moya for a faster vessel, of course. As they continue arguing, Pilot appears on the screen and says that he and Moya want them to stay since they are most fulfilled when serving others. He says that they should have been included in the discussion, and just to prove that Moya is okay, they need to prepare for a media starburst, and uh, despite the crew's rejections, Moya does anyway. However, unfortunately, during starburst, they appear to hit something, and everybody flies off their chairs, which I guess is why you need seatbelts on these spaceships, even while you're eating dinner. And you, you fasten up for starburst, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Aaron says they must have hit something, no kidding, and the fibers on one of Zan's arms are damaged which kind of proves our theory that Zan's race are plant-like, not human, or flesh and blood. They suddenly notice that Rigel is missing, and a white light is surrounding the ship. Dargo goes to walk to command, when he suddenly disappears in front of their eyes into a red light. When Aaron walks forward to where he was, she disappears into a blue light. Crichton, however, makes it to command, where Pilot says that most of the systems are out, and Moya is frightened and in great pain. Pilot shows Rigel on Tier 8, and Aaron in the maintenance bay 3. And he's still looking for Dargo, who's not showing up on sensors. Gianna, hey, remember her? She's still here. Wants to leave, but Crichton says not without everybody else. Zan goes to comfort Pilot in his den, while Crichton tells Gianna to look for Rigel. She says no, but Crichton says Pilot can't get the outer doors open, so she's stuck here anyway, and so she goes to find Rigel. Crichton goes to the maintenance bay, but Aaron is not there. A uh, table nearby begins to shake, when suddenly Crichton gets sucked into a red light, just like Dargo. Suddenly, everything, including Moya, seems red. He gets nauseous and throws up since the light is distorting his vision, to the point he has to put on a blindfold in order to be able to walk around. He makes his way to Pilot's den, where the controls are moving, but Pilot is not there. Dargo is nearby and also nauseous in the red Moya. He sees Crichton walk past, but he can't get to him because he's kind of incapacitated. 
Creighton hears another sound and climbs up on a table, hoisting himself up, when suddenly he gets sucked into something and Moya turns from red to blue. Crichton's vision returns, but now there's a piercing noise that's deafening him. He makes his way to the maintenance bay and finds Aaron at her prowler, but they can't hear each other over the noise, so they use hand signals to try to ask if either one of them has seen Dargo or Rigel. Both say no, or mime no, and they go to where Crichton hoisted himself up into Blue Moya, but this does not work, showing that these portals only work one way. They walk along the corridor when something behind them rips through the air, revealing a bright light, but they don't notice. They continue to Rigel's quarters, but he's not there. Crichton spots his tape recorder on the table, and when he reaches for it, he gets sucked away again without Aaron noticing. This time, Moya turns yellow, and he can see and hear properly, and seems to suffer no ill effects in this new yellow Moya. Crichton finds Rigel there, who is just laughing at everything, and calls him cute. Crichton explains what happened, and he starts to laugh too. Apparently, this yellow Moya affects you with hilarious delirium. Uh, they go on, continue laughing. Uh, Crichton tries to regain his composure and tells Rigel to listen for a noise, but Rigel won't take him seriously, so Crichton leaves. As he walks along the corridor, he hears the noise down a chute. He slides down, laughing all the way, and gets sucked into another Moya. This time, however, it looks like it's the normal, quote-unquote, Moya. Tiana and Zan tell Pilot that he's giving them false information as to the other's locations. They are not on board. Crichton, though, enters and tells them that there are at least three other Moyas, and asks Pilot if he knows anything similar to what is happening. Pilot says that Starburst is the seam between space-time dimensions. Moya rides the stream and is pushed out at a random location. She enters Starburst without adequate thrust, so they appear to be stuck in Starburst, with whatever is on the other side. Crichton explains about the creature that he saw, and tells him to get guns while he works with Pilot. Pilot explains how to reverse thrust, and says that they're still getting sucked in. Crichton says that Moya didn't have to starburst, but Pilot says it's no time for recriminations. They should have been up front in the beginning, and he says Moya is now very scared. Crichton tells Zan and Chiana that he has a plan. Crichton, Zan, and Chiana must go through the different Moyas and activate maximum thrust in all of them. Uh, Zan's acting like the mother of Chiana, telling her no roaming, we stay together the whole way, to which Chiana replies, yes, mom. Crichton then changes the plan, ordering Zan to stay behind and shoot the creature, while he and Chiana go where Crichton went into the red Moya, and they get sucked in there. Over there, the light doesn't appear to affect Chiana, although it's still affecting Crichton, and Dargo walks in, now wearing a mask, asking what is going on. Chiana says she's heard of this before. Her people's weapons specialists, or scientists, once poked a hole through into another dimension, but once it widened, they lost control of it, and a whole star system, four planets, dissolved into dust. Oops. Uh, Crichton tells Dargo that they have to get the engines going all at once when the creature bursts through. They shoot at it, and it retreats. They reach Pilot's den, and Dargo thinks that since Chiana is not affected by the Red Moya, she should stay. Chiana, however, refuses, so Dargo stays. Uh, after some more arguing, uh, Crichton sends Chiana to the Blue Moya and follows. However, once they arrive on the Blue Moya, Chiana starts screaming at the noise as it affects her far worse than anybody else, and leaving her in agony, and she falls to the floor. Crichton picks her up and carries her away and sends her through to the Yellow Moya. Uh, just then, the creature bursts through, and Crichton just stares at it as it leaves scratch marks on the walls. Aaron appears and shoots at it, and then gives Crichton a headset so they can speak to one another. She asks why he didn't shoot the creature, but he doesn't quite know. He tells Aaron the plan, and she says go, she already knows what to do. Crichton says that Pilot was very, very specific, but she recites what to do for full reverse. After all, she has some of Pilot's DNA, which is a callback back to like episode 4 or 5, DNA Mad Scientist, that we didn't exactly like all that well, but we like that little Aaron bit there. Crichton promises not to doubt her again, but then notices more scratch marks, and then goes to Rigel's quarters, and to the Yellow Moya. 
The Moyers continue to be sucked into the white light, already taking several tears of her. Crichton goes down the pilot's den, where Chiana and Rigel are choking together. He performs the sequence full, full reverse and tells her if anything goes wrong to restore the green knob. Uh, despite them laughing and proudly paying attention, Crichton goes back to the normal Moya. Pilot reports full reverse power, but says they're still being drawn in. He and Zan go to command, where Crichton again notices the scratch marks on the walls. Pilot says that Moya has an idea which might help. She could purposefully lose the baby, since that would increase the power, and both she and Pilot blame themselves for the situation that they're in due to attempting starburst prematurely. Both Zan and Crichton say no, that's not an option, and whatever happens, they will go together and keep the baby. Just then, the creature bursts through with a rip in whatever space-time being much larger than before. Pilot tells him to shoot it because Moya's so scared. Crichton tells Zan, no, hold your fire, noticing that now the scratch marks are all grouped together in prime numbers, so it must be trying to communicate with them. He goes and enters the rip, where everything is white, and there are at least four Crichtons. They spot the creature who says that they have reached his realm, and its function is to repair the breaches. It says that it will destroy them, and if they reverse, it will tear the rupture beyond repair. It says no, you should go forward, and it will attempt to conduct them into the space that they began. Crichton comes out of the hole, and Pilot and Zan say he barely got his head into the hole, so there's no time to speak. Crichton says no, I did actually talk to something, and we have to go forward. Pilot objects, thinking the idea is suicide, but eventually agrees and explains that they have to reverse the last four controls of his sequence, and Crichton says to give him 500 microts, or seconds. And more running. He runs to the Red Moya and explains to Dargo what to do. Go forward in 300 microts. Uh, when Dargo explains he doesn't have a timekeeping device, Crichton explains to him the one Mississippi, two Mississippi method, although Dargo kind of mispronounces it as one Mipipipi, two Mipipipi. <laughs> He then returns to the Blue Moya, where the moving is getting harder as more and more tears are getting sucked in. Uh, Crichton puts on his headset and tells Aaron to go forward with maximum thrust in 150 microts. And this time he doesn't bother explaining because Aaron knows what to do, being half-pilot. Uh, unfortunately, he has to take the long way back to his quarters, where the Yellow Moya is, because most of the way is blocked. Uh, he eventually does get there and gets to Yellow Moya and puts in maximum thrust at the right time. The four Moyas converge, and she exits Starburst with everybody on top of Pilot's controls. The relief of having survived, combined with being in such ridiculous positions, causes everyone to laugh as Pilot calmly states that he fails to see the source of their amusement. And then kind of fade back to the first scene where the crew are once again eating around the dinner table, except they're now enjoying each other's company, telling stories and joking around. Dargo asks if it's him or if this is the best food they've ever had. Aaron says that she could live on anything here for a cycle. The jokes continue until Pilot interrupts and asks how they could be so happy after such a near miss. Aaron assures him that they weren't unaffected by what happened. In fact, it affected them all very deeply and asks how he and Moya are handling it. Pilot says well enough to alleviate their concerns about Starburst problems. Uh, and then Pilot does report a change in the baby, and everyone's initially concerned, but it's actually good news. Although Moya can't be exactly sure when, she feels that the day she gives birth is near. The crew decides that this is a cause for celebration, and they toast to a healthy and happy baby. The end. Uh, some trivia. Paul Butterworth remembers the fact that this was the hardest episode for everybody to grasp. David Kemper did not want the creature to be seen by the audience, and Butterworth noted, conceptually, it was one of those things that was bounced around for a long time before we came up with what we had, which was the claw tearing through. But you didn't really need to see the claw either, just the tears opened up into the white space. Uh, the music and sound departments worked together on this episode. Uh, the sound engineer, Chris Neal, noted, Musically, we kind of stayed out of the yellow dimension, the happy dimension, and left it to the sound people. 
and concentrated on the music for the red and blue dimensions. With the red one, we used a lot of bottom end to give it a lot of threat, and then in the blue level, it was a dreamier kind of approach. One working title for this episode was The Fifth Reality. Uh, O'Bannon admired Kemper's imagination, saying this was yet another wild idea of his. David came up with the idea of having doorways into different dimensions, not at ground level. He climbed up into the rafters to get from one to the other, because the two dimensions aren't exactly lined up in parallel. That's just the way his mind works. Each of the different dimensions would have a different sensory issue going on. All right. So what did you think of this one, Jason? Yeah, it, I enjoyed it. It had a lot of repeat tropes, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into when we break it down. But overall, there was I liked the, the sensory stuff. I liked the, uh, seeing the different crew distributed and having to, to work through it. So yeah, pretty, pretty action-packed, you know, lots of movement, lots of running. So yeah, it, it, it ran by. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. I guess it's, it's nice to see that, you know, not every story has to start out or be, be this like constant crisis, you know, action and things happening. You know, it kind of starts out, you know, in semi-happy, well, not really happy, but at least the downtime moment, right? Like they're in the middle of having dinner, which for some reason they have like enough food to feed 35 people, not like the five of them, but hey, <laughs> actually both times, hey. both times they, they did that. Which is actually kind of an interesting shift because if you go back to the beginning of the season, right, they, they were struggling to, to barter and trade for enough food to, to get by. That's why Rigel was hoarding food cubes and stuff like that. And so we've gone from hoarding food, food I can't talk, food cubes to, um, you know, having multiple feasts, right? Yeah, and even on the, on the last one there, Crichton was talking about like his grandmother's biscuit recipe and holding up something. So obviously, the, and talk about the ingredients, so they must have come into some possession of a bunch of supplies or ingredients or whatever that Moya uses to produce, or not Moya, but I guess the you know technology on her that produces the food to use. So I guess they're having fun with it and just trying different things. I don't know. Yeah, although you know, as he kind of states, none of the ingredients he had were actually what were supposed to be in the biscuits. So yeah, he says it wasn't even close, <laughs> so, which is probably why everybody looks at it funny and like that's disgusting and <laughs> doesn't eat. So I guess they're having fun making food for each other. I don't know, but yeah, it's kind of fun. At least in the prior episodes, they've seemed happy and supportive of Moya and her baby. Once they found out that, you know, she wasn't trying to kill them because she felt like it, but because she was pregnant. But for some reason, at the beginning of this episode, most of them are like, well, this pregnancy thing isn't working out. Let's just get out of here and just leave Moya, which, I mean, except for the obvious drama, I don't really see why the sudden change of heart on these topics or whatever yeah I, I i try not to harp on it because i i don't want to sound too negative but i think my biggest complaint of this season so far is the you know constant back and forth of con conflict it seems like we'll resolve it everybody's doing good everybody's getting along and then we out of nowhere we'll open an episode with you know everybody fighting or arguing or or some kind of drama that kicks off the episode and, and as you mentioned this one really didn't have a whole lot of setup yeah you know, we ended you know previous episodes with everybody happy about the baby and now you know we've got some of them even talking about you know abandoning moya and moving to something different or as rigel says trader in on a new model you know i mean there's a there's a lot of uh, out of nowhere shift and personally i mean if if that was the look they were going for i would have opened the episode with some situation that the prey to see kept them from escaping from easily, right? I mean, it could be a, just a quick one-off. Okay, we, we had to, you know, a hard time getting away from somebody. 
and then going into the conflict instead of just blindly starting with them arguing about it. Yeah, because they do mention, or Rigel maybe, or somebody mentions that without Starburst, they're too slow to get away from a peacekeeper ship because otherwise Moya is just at normal propulsion, you know, whatever that is. And which, so that makes sense. They could maybe start with that or have some conversation about that. Or wow, yeah, like he said, we almost got it. We almost didn't go away from that last peacekeeper ship, you know, because we can't Starburst that well. But yeah, I mean, they really wanted to bookend it, I think, with the two food scenes, but it just kind of felt like another out of nowhere drama conflict. The only one that I'll give credit for you know, being the new person and therefore probably not being as integrated as the rest of the crew would be China, right? I mean, she kind of comments about wanting to take the ship and leave, uh, one of the shuttles and leave or whatever we're calling the transports. And and I buy that. She's, she's new. She's not as tied in. But the rest of them have been together so long at this point, I don't really see the abandoning Moya thing. Yeah, and at least Crichton kind of tells her, well, that's great. You can't leave anyway because the doors can't open. So <laughs> you're stuck here regardless. So deal with it. Right. And um, I guess speaking of Starburst, one of the things that Pilot had mentioned when they were talking about how they got stuck where they were, which kind of made me wonder, scratch my head, was that he says Moya rides the Starburst stream and gets pushed out at a random location. Really? <laughs> That's an odd way of traveling, um, unless you're early Doctor Who seasons. But you would think there'd be some kind of control over where you come out. Otherwise, you really can't effectively travel because you can't really get where you want to go. Yeah, was it um, was it the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that had the uh, Heart of Gold, where it had some kind of probability thing, or took you where you needed to go, or there was there was some trick to that shuttle, and that's that's what this makes me think of. I, you know, I I thought it was more kind of a hyperspace similar to that, and instead it sounds like it's more of a random. All right, we're gonna jump and hope we get where we want to be, or somewhere close to where we want to be. Yeah, that was the uh, infinite improbability engine or drive they called it. Yeah. Where like you, you yeah. pass you pass through every part of the universe simultaneously, and then you pop up, I guess, where it's most improbable or something like that. So, yeah, it, and that kind of leads to a good question of if Starburst is their method and it's random, how is that actually ever going to get them? Why, why do they need a map to get out of the uncharted territories, right? Because <laughs> they're just going to keep starbursting until they come out. It's it's just a, it's just statistics. It's not a point to point. You don't need maps. Yeah, because you can understand how they explained it. You know, the, in the first episode where, you know, she didn't know she was going, so she had Starburst to get away from the Peacekeepers, and they wound up somewhere different. But now that you're somewhere else, you could at least be like, oh, look, there's a star over there. Let's go there. Poop, you know, but uh, I'm kind of hand-waving that away of that's just, they, they do kind of have some kind of control where they're going, just not, they don't know how to get back where they back where they originally came from, but they can still kind of pop around. Because they, they got back to when... Uh, with Jeremiah Crichton, that episode, you know, they got back to where they're going from planet system to planet system, and they got back to where he was, so they have to have some kind of control over it. That's a good point. So maybe maybe, maybe it has something to do with the pregnancy, or maybe there's two types of jumps. We'll just hand wave that yeah. and keep just going. Kind of a little throwy line, you know, but, you know. Um, and then kind of, I kind of had the same effect when we first went to the Red Moya. Um, it kind of had the same effect on me as uh, Crichton, uh, at least for the first time, maybe the first couple of minutes that they were there. Because for some reason, I felt like a little off. Like, I wasn't like queasy or dizzy, but I was kind of, it, it did off put me, I think. Um, I guess this was before all the warnings now about, you know, this episode may cause seizures, you know, the, the bright lights or the flashing may set you off. You know, this is probably before that happened. But at least on the subsequent runs through the Red Moya, either I adjusted or they stopped kind of messing with the camera angles and exposures and things to make you go, yeah, I get it. They're in a weird place. Yeah, the the red dimension, I guess, is was my least favorite, but 
I don't know if that's because it didn't really affect me as much as you're saying, although I guess maybe it did subtly, and that's why I enjoyed it the least. But uh, there was, especially the first time, there was a lot of, like, you know, um, repeat motions and, you know, wavy images and things like that that they did dial back later, and I kind of am glad they did because it just drug on, right? I mean, you know, I only need to see Dargo fall down or lay down, like, three times. You know, I don't need it, like, 20 and I kind of felt like we were we were seeing the same repeat effect over and over and over again. And again, maybe that was the discomfort they were going for. Yeah, I know it's like you know, show don't tell. So okay, we 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 got it shown to us. Now the next three times they do this, okay, I got the idea. I don't need to see it. <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> and it probably saves on a special effect budget that they don't have to keep doing that. You know, every time. So, uh, and I guess the, the blue Moya that didn't really bother me at all. That was fine, although. They did seem to dial down that shrieking, piercing noise after they made it clear again, like the red dimension, that, hey, this has something wrong with it. Here's what's wrong with it. Okay, now you know we won't keep beating it over the head with it. Yeah, and I did like how, I don't know if it was intentional that the crew members who were affected by each one were initially started in each of the dimensions, but the effects varied, and I thought that was really cool, right? Cheyenne was fine when she went in the red one, but when she went to the blue, she was affected by it more than Crichton or um, Aaron. And so, you know, she actually had to be carried out. I thought that was a nice nice touch. We got a little more character information just kind of thrown in there. Yeah, and at least, you know, she didn't want to stay in the red dimension where everything was fine. I guess she didn't want to be by herself, um, so she wanted to go with Crichton. But then, yeah, that didn't work out too well. <laughs> but then, in the end, she got to go with Rigel and just kind of lay around and just laugh hysterically at nothing. And, you know, so they had a good time. <laughs> Which, you know, makes sense. Those two kind of usually end up, seem to end up together, so... And I guess before we leave the blue dimension, it was kind of funny how uh, Aaron and Crichton were miming at each other, how they kind of described in like caricatures or like waving their hands around about Dargo, like trying to make like, you know, the tall guy with the long chin and, and Roger, like, you know, short little guy. <laughs> yeah, although, you know, they've been together long enough, I, I would have expected it to be a little bit faster, but it did give a good comedy scene of them trying to mime at each other. And um, at, at one point when, I think maybe the first time Crichton went from I think yellow Moya back to the regular Moya he does name drop the episode he says like th- once more through the looking glass or something so that's at least twice in as many episodes that they've name dropped the title in the dialogue which I enjoy I always like seeing the, the nod to the title of the episode so I think they should, they should make that a thing and just do it in every episode now yeah it makes me wonder if we just didn't notice that before but usually I'm pretty good at that but yeah maybe not but and now I'm not going to go back and watch 16 prior episodes to see if they name drop things. So, well, we'll, 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 we'll check it from here going forward. We'll see. Well, spoiler alert, they did not do it in the next episode. This is true. Because I did, I did look for it. Yeah. Yeah, I was waiting for it now. I'm like, nope, didn't do it. And I guess this also was kind of like a departure, not a departure, but like a different way of doing the episode. They're more using their brains to get out of, the, you know, to figure out the problem and, and find a solution versus, you know, shooting it to death. Which I guess they did try to shoot the creature a couple of times, but most of the time they're using their brains, not their brawn, to figure out how to operate in each dimension, except the yellow one, which you couldn't really do anything about that one. He just sat there and laughed. Um, but yeah, like, you know, Crichton blindfolding himself, Dargo with the goggles in the red, you know, Aaron thinking to use the headset to talk on a frequency that wasn't affected, or she made a, she found a frequency that wasn't affected for the blue. And I guess the final prime number, I guess Epiphany that Crichton had that, oh, it's not trying to kill us. It wants to talk to us because these scratch marks look like prime numbers. Okay, I'll take your word for it. Uh, It's not big, nasty scratches that will kill you, but sure. Brain power and a lot of running. Yeah, lots and lots of running. Which I guess, like, he had to run between three different Moyas in 500 seconds. 
and tell people what Mip to do. Pippies. Yeah, and tell people what to do and how to count, and then you know, keep running around and having things cut off. And but yeah, I guess that's enough time because you know the speed of plot. You know, you make it just a nick of time with you know seconds to spare or micros to spare. Right, and and it was kind of neat that the the points of entry were kind of spaced out like where the different ships were spaced out. When you see that one scene of all four ships, right? It's they've kind of were spread out away from each other. So it makes sense that you'd have to hit different points. Um, although they didn't do that when they initially separated, right? Because Dargo and Aaron disappeared while walking down the first hallway. Yeah, I mean, maybe it was slowly widening as each ship maybe was moving at different speed in its own dimension or something. I don't know. But yeah, it was, it was, it was a cool visual having the three red, yellow, blue Moyas not overlapping, but touching, you know, kind of Venn diagram of three ships, you know. <laughs> Yeah, the the Vin Moya diagram. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I guess going back to starbursting, just because that's the whole point of this episode. So I guess when things work normally, these little aliens don't get upset that things are popping in and out of their little dimensions. Uh, I guess if because they're getting open and closed normally, it's just when they kind of don't and they get stuck, then they kind of get mad and want to close things. Yeah, the, the the creature was probably my least favorite. I mean, I know I've harped on the drama setup, but th- that was not needed in my opinion. They could have just had the ship deteriorating and that be your sense of urgency. Um, the, the, it was fine. The creature was fine, but I, it really didn't add anything to the story, I think, when the dimensions were good enough. Yeah, and it kind of, I guess they went back to the weird multi-lens, you know, whatever, you know, layering the screen because it looked like it kind of looked like a squid or a octopus or something. Then they kind of just like did funky things with the camera to see, couldn't really tell what it was. So it's kind of, I guess, a cheap way of not having to design a new creature. Yeah, I thought it looked like a fly, but you know, either way. Yeah, I guess they're probably just going to said like, oh, they're stuck somewhere and they're slowly disappearing. Although I guess, and then done something to figure out, well, backwards isn't working, so let's go forward. You know, but you know, <laughs> that wasn't a huge, a huge mental lift, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a plot. It's a plot device. Fine. Okay, it's an alien. So, so there's, so, which is kind of cool, I guess. Something lives in the dimension that the starburst through. So okay, cool. That might come up back up later. Maybe never again. I don't remember, but who knows? You know, it's it's like we said last time. It's their universe. You know, we've never seen these creatures before. They can make up whatever they want, and that's the canon because that's what they said. So okay, there's stuff living there. There's stuff living everywhere. That's what I take away. <laughs> <laughs> And um, yeah, they, they wrap things up with the now happy dinner party where they're still eating a ton of food, like we said before. And now apparently, I, I guess Crichton and Zan, or was it Chiana, whatever, told everybody else that, hey, you know, Moya was going to kill our baby so we could try to escape. And we said no. And now they're all like, oh, everything's fine now. Oh, and Moya's going to have the baby soon. Great. Yay. You know, now we can all stay because we're not going to have to get a new ship anymore. Yeah. It, you know, I, and, you know, maybe that'll be the. The, the season wrap, right? I mean, we're getting towards the end of the season, so that'll be the, how we close out with a, a new Leviathan baby. But it is also, you know, episode ends, we're back to one big happy family, at least until there's more drama needed. Yep, which we'll see on the next episode if there's more drama. All right. And speaking of the next episode, uh, episode 18, A Bug's Life. We open with uh, Zan locking Dargo up in chains because a Peacekeeper Marauder is heading toward them, although it's not from Crisis Command Carrier. It was Crichton's idea to lock them up, and Pilot closes the cells as a peacekeeper's board. Uh, we see Aaron wearing a peacekeeper uniform and carrying a large gun 
greets the crew of the new of the ship as um, and asks for their regiment and assignment. One peacekeeper asks her to identify herself, which she does. He is the captain Larocque, and his assignment is none of her business. Their marauder has a cesium fuel leak. Crichton enters the room, and now in full peacekeeper captain's uniform. He orders Aaron to lower her weapon and asks Larocque what he's doing on his ship. Larocque says he's on a Priority Red 1 mission, and so he's assuming command of Moya. Crichton says he thinks not, and the DRD starts shooting at the peacekeepers. He says if Larocque needs his help, he suggests he asks nicely. Crichton and Aaron show Larocque the prisoners, and Crichton says they're experimenting with Leviathan Mastery without the use of a control collar, and they just happen to recapture the prisoners. He says they're using a neural control on pilot. Larock says that every test he's heard so far has resulted in the loss of the Leviathan and its crew. Uh, he says he's got one crate that he needs to get back to peacekeeper territory without delay. It's urgent, but he'll, and he'll give the coordinates of the base, and they'll be there in 20 arms. It's a new Gramic base, top secret, and it's inside the uncharted territories. The other peacekeepers are unloading the cargo when Chiana comes in and says that the captain ordered her to tend to them and so she's brought them food. One of the male peacekeepers, Thon, and Chiana flirt with each other, and she gets an imprint of the key that he used to open the cargo container. Uh, while the peacekeepers are eating, Larock and Aaron talk. He asks if she's ever had any dealings with special ops before, to which she replies she's heard of them. She tells him a story she once heard, and he says, just think, now she's going to sit and eat with one. Crichton is talking with Zan and Dargo, and they're getting anxious still wanting to take the peacekeepers by surprise. Crichton says they should learn all they can. Ignorance is also dangerous. Dargo says that he won't be chained up again, and Zan says that they should let Rigel know, but when Zan goes to tell him he's used one of his hidden escape routes to leave. Thon comes along as Crichton is with Dargo. Dargo grabs him and Thon strikes Dargo uh, before quickly getting out and locking the cell. Aaron and the Rock are still talking, and she talks a little bit about her history. He says that the sooner he gets the cargo away, the happier he'll be. She recognizes his stasis gun, which is for capturing, not killing. She asks if it's wise to take his cargo to a science base, and he says that it's perfect. China molds the key while Rigel goes to check out the cargo. China enters, key in hand, as Thon says he'll check out the cargo bay. China tells Rigel that they're both there for the same thing, to snurch any valuables. He says he's not a snurcher, he procures. She unlocks the container, but neither wants to open it. China eventually goes ahead, and inside is some kind of life form. Thon enters and finds the container open. He goes to check it out, and when it appears to grab a hold of him. The other peacekeeper male enters, and Thon shoots him, locks the door, and kills the life form. He hears China and grabs her and kisses her. Larock, Aaron, and the female peacekeeper, Hassan, enter. They find the dead peacekeeper on the floor and the dead life form. Larocque says it's escaped, then they find Thon. Crichton enters, and Larocque tells them that they're on fugitive recovery. It's an intellant virus. They isolated that life form when it was being used as a host. It can only affect one person at a time unless it lays its spores, which it does if it's in the same host for about an arm. Larocque asks Thon what happened. He says he doesn't know. Larocque noticed Chiana, who says that Rigel opened the crate, and then the peacekeeper came in and started firing. Thon says it could have happened and Rigel has ac is in an access shaft, and so he could be anywhere. Aaron privately tells Crichton that their chance for surprise is gone, and the plan is a disaster. They're all searching for Rigel when Dargo and Zan attack the peacekeepers. 
Crichton tells the Rock they need the prisoners and goes and convinces them to join in finding the Hynarian. Dargo lowers his weapon. Larock explains the search plan. They'll search in pairs, and no one goes alone from now on. The host body will show signs of high acidity, but only after the virus is left. And they should have no contact with the Hynarian. Pilot has not located Rigel, so he must still be in the access shafts. Hassan tells Zan that the host remembers nothing once the virus leaves. Crichton and China enter the shaft, and China continues to move in an eerie manner. Aaron asks Larock why they didn't kill the virus, and he says his orders were to capture it alive to study for use in battle. She says it's a costly price to lose much of his crew. Aaron and Larock find Rigel hiding. Everyone convenes there, and Rigel says that he can explain when Larock hits him with the stasis gun. Zan and Crichton both get good looks at China, who's looking a tad nervous. She backs into Crichton, seemingly doing something to him. Zan says she must formulate something to get it out without killing Rigel, but Crichton wants to lock them back up. They don't want to, but he says he'll get an antibody from Hassan, and they should use the time to learn more about the base. Thon comes along again, so Crichton punches Zan back into her cell. Larock and Hassan tell Aaron that Rigel will die before they get the virus out of him. He tells Aaron that, numerically speaking, the virus is beating him. He asks Aaron to join him as he's seen her in action, and he likes the idea of having her close. He asks maybe that if maybe they can discuss it at the Gramic base. Meanwhile, Crichton goes to Hassan and beats her to death with a pole to the head. He then smashes the stasis gun before leaving. Zahn and Dargo have called Chiana, and Zahn asks how she's feeling, if she's feeling dizzy. Chiana says yes, but how does she know? She gets Chiana to lick her bed cover, which contains litmus fibers. It turns red, signifying acid. She had the virus. She says she doesn't remember, and Dargo says she wouldn't. The host suffers memory loss. Aaron goes to command where Crichton has increased speed. He says he's doing exactly what he would really do in this situation and has words with the rock. Thon enters and says Hassan is dead and the stasis gun is destroyed. Crichton grabs a gun when Chiana, Zahn, and Dargo run in. Zahn's saying the virus is still loose and she thinks it's in Crichton. He punches Aaron, then Larock, but they all manage to restrain him. Zahn looks at her hands and says, oh no. Crichton gets up and asks what's going on. The virus has jumped. Everyone aims their guns at each other. The virus can't re-enter Crichton, so it's in one of them. Dargo says Zahn said she could make an antibody, and she says she'll try. They all go, and she creates it when Crichton notices Hassan's body. Chana sees him look and tells him it wasn't his fault. It was the virus. Zahn tests herself, saying an acid life form would react to such a high level of alkaline, even if it doesn't kill it, so it's not in her. Crichton tests Aaron, and she's clean. He tests Thon, who says it's in Larock, and everyone starts screaming. Dargo and Larock both say it's in the other, and Crichton tests Dargo when Larock runs. It's him. Pilot blocks off the tear, and Larock grabs Aaron and shoots Thon. Larock says that they will let him use the Marauder to escape, and he'll leave them be. Dargo says if it spawns, it could contaminate thousands. Larock asks them if that's really a problem and stabs Aaron. Crichton goes after him as Dargo calls for Zan. Larock gets to the Marauder, but Crichton lets him go. He asks Pilot for the first stage of Starburst, which ignites the cesium fuel leak, trailing the Marauder and blowing it up. Cut to Zahn seeing to Rigel and Dargo saying if anything happens, he brought it on himself. Zahn says she's sure he learned his lesson, and Dargo removed the chains from his cell and says he'll never be locked up again. She says it must have been difficult for him, and he prays there will never be a next time.
Crichton is with Aaron, and she says the virus and the rock are dead. She, he says she's lucky that he missed her heart. She says what's closer than he thinks. She asks about what the Grimmick base, and he says they're getting far away from it, but still don't know why it's here. She asks him why he's here, and he replies that he wanted to be here if, and she says thanks. He says don't mention it, and she says why she ever would. Uh, a little bit of trivia for this episode. Uh, Ricky Era's original ideal for using the, the cells as storage spaces came back into play for this episode. He commented after filming that we should have done a shot showing there were 30 of them or either side of the corridor and also the on other levels. The thing about these shots is you can reuse them every now and again, and each time you drop them, it just reinforces the scale of Moya. Uh, O'Bannon liked the contrast between this episode and the prior through the looking glass, with this being militaristic and the prior having a very science fiction-y feel. He continued, I particularly liked the China Rigel scenes. There was also some nice Aaron stuff. It gave us some background on her, and we met a young man she could identify with. Browder came up with the idea to play his peacekeeper captain with an accent. O'Bannon noted that he wisely decided to add that in, which was great. By this stage, our audience would buy that Crichton had spent all this time with the peacekeepers and with Aaron, so he could carry it off. Uh, hints were also dropped in this episode that foretold the virus's reappearance, but it never returned in the show. Uh, spoiler alert there. And in the original broadcast schedule of season one on Sci-Fi, this episode was followed by a nearly four-month mid-season hiatus before the season's concluding story arc began. So, uh, what'd you think, Eric? Uh, I liked it. I mean, it was is there a good kind of like who done it kind of mystery of like you know who's got the virus, who doesn't? You know, you're not sure. Although parts of it you're pretty sure about, but at the end, which we'll get into later, that was kind of you know who's got it at the end. But yeah, I mean, I liked it. I agree with. Uh, what some of the quotes had said of, you know, the she and I Rachel scenes were good. Got to learn more about Aaron and kind of how she was kind of like reflecting back on her peacekeeper life with these peacekeepers and how she's kind of kind of fell back into that kind of bond or role or the camaraderie kind of thing, even though she knew that it probably couldn't last. So yeah, overall, I liked it. How about you? Yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, I like the idea of uh, special forces units. You know, it kind of gives us a different section of the peacekeepers. Uh, than we've seen before. The base was an interesting revelation, right? So now we've got some more stuff going on in the unknown regions, and we've, we've got, you know, they're not as alone and isolated out there as they have been. It's kind of felt like they were protected from the peacekeepers up to this point. Uh, so lots of different plot points. Um, Story-wise, you know, again, kind of a, a rote bouncing virus thing, I, although I do like that the, since they can't be reinfected, it kind of gives you a progression of, you know, eliminating people as they've had it, right? You know, you can you can figure out who's safe as long as they've been tested for it before. Yeah, and also if you wind up being dead, then you know, well, wasn't <laughs> wasn't in you. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> and uh, just for funnies, I had looked up like intelligent because I didn't know if they made that word up or if it meant for, if it meant something. And I guess some synonyms came up according to our friend Google uh, for like morphic and morphe. So I know morph is like to change into something. So that didn't quite match what it did. So maybe they just thought it sounded cool and like alien-like and they use that. Yeah, I think they were going for intelligent maybe and they just wanted it to sound spacey. So intelligent. Yeah, because it's more like an intelligent virus, obviously, because it would take over, you know, new enough to take over the mental and physical capabilities of the host and I guess access enough memories to blend in because you couldn't tell 
that you know Chiana wasn't Chiana. You know, she kind of looked a little off, but otherwise you wouldn't know. You know, Crichton acted normal-ish, except maybe like punching people and maybe being a little hyped up, but otherwise you couldn't really tell. So it's you know nice smart virus. Well, and it actually retained memory, right? Because it remembered even when it was no longer in Crichton, it remembered his feelings for Aaron. So it it picked up pieces of knowledge and maintained it as it transferred. So theoretically, it was the smartest thing on the ship. Yeah, just forgot about the cesium leak and cesium's explosive. But hey, other than that, you know, maybe, maybe didn't study physics or chemistry. And um, I guess another thing that I'd noticed, or I'd, I'd always wondered throughout the entire show when I watched it years ago, is you know, on like on Dark Wars collarbones, there's, there's like those little metal like hoops or loops. He's got like, so I I wasn't sure what those were for. I don't know if that's like some kind of like body piercing or like body art that Luxons did, but now apparently it's for, you know, hooking up chains. So I'm guessing the peacekeepers implanted those in him when he got captured. Yeah. And, and okay, this, this leads to my one nitpick of the episode. And I realized that they were, I think they were going for a little bit of character development with Dargo and the chains, uh, given his scene at the end. But why even bother chaining him? Why not just lock him in the cell? Yeah, good point. Uh, if, 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 if the cell doors aren't strong enough to hold a Luxon, then do you reinforce the doors? <laughs> yeah, it, it just seemed odd because I guess the strength would be the issue, but Zahn and Rigel didn't get chained, right? But for some reason, we had to for him. So, Although apparently you should chain Rigel because he knows the secret ways out of his cell. So, Yeah, yeah. if anybody got chained, it should have been Rigel. That's right. <laughs> Speaking of which, while we're talking about Rigel um, and what the creators had said before is i did enjoy the chiana and rigel scene in the cargo bay like they're trying to talk about how to get into the crate and then once they figure that out then they're, they're trying to discuss like how to split up what's in there like you know 50 50 or i get more because i'm smarter whatever they're, they're going back and forth and you know she's saying like you know they're both snurchers which i guess means like thieves or whatever he's like i'm no snurcher i procure i'm, I'm, a, I'm a procurer you know so it's all in the in the naming but that was pretty funny for rigel it definitely is <laughs> Yeah, he, he's more procurer and a, a schmoozer than a, I guess the you know, evil snurcher. I guess. Yeah, lowly snurcher. Uh, yeah, I, I do find that it's it's fun to see them looking for where she fits in the crew. Right, we've got this this new person, and we've got to find how she fits in with each person. So we've seen her obviously interact with Crichton because he was the initial person they paired her with, and then we had some some Zan stuff with her calling her mom last episode, and now she's fitting in with Rigel. So it's kind of neat to see her bounce from, from member, crew member to crew member and find how she fits with each person. And I think I think it was this episode where he, he gives Chiana her nickname that, spoiler alert, not that spoiler, but that he calls her throughout the rest of the series, Pip. I don't know why, but that must mean, I have to look that up, but, you know, he calls her Pip. You know, he, he keeps calling Rigel Sparky. So that's kind of fun just to see that, you know, again, the camaraderie, the, you know, bonding, you know, you give someone a nickname usually means you're close to them. Well, ideally, yeah. <laughs> right. And and that seems to be Crichton's way of developing that relationship. And I guess the other interesting interpersonal scenes anyway, or at least we learn more about different characters, and like they also had mentioned in the other comments, was the Aaron and the Rock scenes. Like I said before, you can kind of see her getting back into that camaraderie with her fellow peacekeepers. You know, they were having a good time talking, reminiscing, telling stories. And I guess when he asked her or said that he wanted her to join him when they got to the base, you can kind of see her thinking like, maybe? Nah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that that ship sailed, and I think she knows it. I'm, I'm glad they're not, you know, having her go through moments where she acts like she's going to. But 
you know, I, I mean, definitely she's going to long for that life that's lost to her, but it's good to see them not go down that path every time she encounters a peacekeeper. Yeah, plus I'm sure they have some kind of records, so they would, you know, she gets there and some kind of DNA test or, you know, they, if they have some kind of, you know, biochip implanted that tells them who they are, whatever, something that's going to come up and say, hey, you're Aaron's son, you know, oops. <laughs> so yeah, that wouldn't work anyway, but it's nice to see her think, yeah, maybe I could go back. Nah, this is kidding. Who's kidding? You know. Yeah. Yeah. What might have been. <laughs> exactly. And then, yeah, back to the, obviously the main point of the show, Mr. Virus or Ms. Virus, whatever. I mean, you, you kind of knew where it was going. You know, you knew that who got possessed, you could tell because they, they made a, a show about it. When I went to Chiana, you kind of knew it was her. It kind of, why else would he kiss her, right? And then she kind of acted goofy. Uh, but it was kind of fun to figure out or to see how everybody else dealt with it who didn't have the audience standpoint. And then I guess the final scene was they kind of confused things. They, they kind of maybe figured the audience was getting you know, wise to what they're doing. So they kind of made it a little confusing or a little ambiguous where when they're all wrestling together, grabbing guns and whatever else that, you know, Zan kind of comes out of that pile saying like, Oh no. And looking at her hands. So you're thinking like, Oh, Zan's got it or something. And then turns out apparently, no, it was the rock, but I guess they want you to think it was Zan at least for a couple of minutes. Yeah. And it's interesting. They chose to let Zan be the one to make the antibody, right. Or the test at least. Right. Cause she, she could have just as likely been possessed and fake it anyway. It, it just seemed like a very trusting thing to do, but you know, it worked out and we did know that it was not going to be any of, um, there was not going to be any of the peacekeepers to survive. Right. I mean, there were what, two of them in the final standoff and both of them got taken out before the end, but so we knew, knew that it had to end up in one of them. So they were smart and left two of them. Yeah. Cause obviously they, they can't let any one of them leave and say, Oh, by the way, secret base that we should talk about in a minute you know, hey, we found the Leviathan with some prisoners on it, and, you know, they're over that way somewhere. So, yeah, that wouldn't have worked. So they had they all had to get killed somehow, but I guess they want to make you think for a second, oh, it's still in the crew, but... Or, or I don't know, maybe it was, and they we didn't see something, or they cut something out where Zan maybe immediately transferred it to the rock. I don't know. but Or I was thinking maybe she's immune, being a plant-based life form, not flesh and blood, but they I guess it wasn't really worth, you know, expanding that kind of theme or exploring it in like the last five minutes of the show. So who cares? Right. And she was the first person she tested. So she didn't think she was immune. So yeah, unless that was a fake fake out, which they didn't expand on. But anyway, you know, I guess they had enough things going on that why make it even more complicated of who's who, who's what let's just kind of keep it simple. Yeah. They'd already moved on past that at that point. It was time to blow something up. So apparently in the uncharted territories that, Nobody seems to know about, except the peacekeepers know all about it, that wherever they are, they've got a secret base. And it's a science base, apparently, not like a military base, which is interesting because up until this point, the peacekeepers are more militaristic. I mean, obviously, they must have some kind of science department and tech department, as we saw with PK Tech Girl. We have a, you know, a technical person. So I'm sure that's got to come up in the next couple of episodes or later since they're nearby. And why kind of let that giant, big, lantern-hanging moment go to waste, right? <laughs> yeah, and that's an interesting point that I really hadn't thought about, is that for it being uncharted territories, there do seem to be a whole lot of peacekeeper activity. I mean, obviously this new base that you mentioned, they hung a lantern on. But if you look back, we've had, you know, supply depot planets that had, you know, mental slaves basically working the crops as they repeat the day over and over again. And, and that was a peacekeeper-related um, supply. 
all the way up to this. So we seem to have a lot of, of peacekeeper related vessels and uh, ships and stuff floating around for it to be uncharted territories. Yeah, I mean, Kyle, you kind of want to know, like, who's it uncharted for? Obviously, not the peacekeepers. So, like, have they charted some of it and they're, like, keeping it from the other races or the other people that they're peacekeeping for? And, like, no, nothing over here. Nothing over here. Don't, nothing to see here. Yeah, maybe that's just what it was called at one point. And we still call it that because, you know, it could be like the, the, the Wild West or something. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, a, a point of reference. <laughs> yeah. The territories formerly known as Uncharted. Right. Yeah. Right. The, the, you know, they didn't want to redo all the maps to make them say the charted territories. So. Yeah, because you know how it is in the tech society. You know, everyone's got you know different files saved, and it's a pain to update, and yeah, no one just wants to do all that. So. Yeah, you, you, GitHub, you know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no big Windows update push out in the uncharted territories. All right. Any other comments on this or the prior episode? No, I, th- I think we've covered it pretty well. I think we uh, both had high points and low points, but overall they were a good pair and an enjoyable uh, role as we continue through the season. Yeah, you kind of had like your more cerebral episodes with the, through the looking glass, and then you had like the more physical. Oops, that was my cat knocking off my, one of my speakers on my desk. So we'll keep that in the in the edit. <laughs> so, <laughs> just maybe because it's funny. Uh, but yeah, so we, we had like the one cerebral episode with through the looking glass, and then we had the more physical, not really mental, more like a, maybe like a murder mystery kind of episode with this one so it was nice nice double pairing and that nice pairing of different tropes genres whatever i call it all right so your homework everybody who's listening for next time is season one episode 19 nerve and season one episode 20 the hidden memory and i know we kind of play the game of what do we think this could mean I got no idea. Yeah, those don't give you a whole lot. I mean, nerve could be anything from you know a standoff or some kind of uh, fear-based episode up to uh, let's see, hidden memory. Uh, we can make a guess at whose hidden memory we have to worry about. Yeah, I mean, like who at this point do we not know too much about, right? I guess Rigel, kind of. We we kind of know why he was dethroned, but not really too much else about him. Chiana's uh, brand. Give- Chiana's brand new, but so they might. It's probably too early to dive into her backstory, other than what they've already given in the fir- her first episode. Yeah, I'm going to say Aaron because uh, we just got done talking about a lot of Peacekeeper stuff, so that's the first thing that jumps into my mind. Yeah, if we're near this Peacekeeper base, then maybe that might come into play or something somehow. Maybe they, she gets captured and taken to it or interrogated and they're probing her memories or something, and, which hopefully is not like a like Star Trek uh, Shades of Grey clip episode where they just go through her, you know, Memories of being on the crew, but you know, we'll see. <laughs> kind of early for that. <laughs> I don't know. That's like the end of season. No, that's end, end of season two, right? Never mind. Yeah. So, but yeah. So, yeah. There's not a lot of clip show in season one already to pull one of those off. So, hopefully, they won't do that. All right. So, that's your homework, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.